Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, listeners, I have some great news. We got our first sponsor, Bach Trumpets. It's very fitting that they're our first because I've been playing their instruments since I'm 12 years old. Now, I'm thrilled to tell you about the reclamation of the Bach Trumpet brand. Just about a month ago, I had the privilege of playing a few of these new horns, and I have to say, even after a few notes, I knew it was the trumpet for me. Bach has invested in R&D, engineers, product development teams, and artist relations to reclaim the elements of Bach's best horns while improving the design and performance of these instruments. I can confidently say that these are some of the best trumpets I've ever played. The new line of Bach Pro Trumpets will be launching later this year, and I can't wait for you to experience the exceptional sound and craftsmanship for yourself. Visit BachBrass.com for your chance to be the first to learn about these new horns. Or you could come to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City and hear me play mine. Either way, you're going to love what's going on at Bach as much as I do. French-Lebanese trumpeter, composer, producer, and arranger Ibrahim Malouf's innovative style knows no boundaries. He's performed in over 40 countries, sold out arenas from Paris to Istanbul, and performed in front of the Eiffel Tower on Bastille Day for an audience of 6 million. Despite these astounding accomplishments, Ibrahim struggled to find his own voice under the shadow of his childhood teacher, his famed father, trumpeter Nassim Malouf. I was answering a request from my father, who was basically telling me, if you don't become one of the best soloists, that means you screwed your life. So for some reason, I believed him. It's my father. Come on, <laughs> you know. But then I realized, is this what I want to do in my life? I'm not sure. I have the right to question myself. Do I love trumpet? No. 
You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I'm curious what it's like to follow directly in your father's musical footsteps because, like me, your dad plays trumpet and raised musical kids, but I raised kids who play string instruments, so I have absolutely no leg to stand on. What was it like studying trumpet with your dad? It was sometimes something extremely ecstatic and sometimes a very big struggle. (laughs) You know, it's in the extremes. It wasn't like easy. I started uh, taking lessons with him when I was seven. And um, in approximately one year, I had 365 lessons, which is basically what one would get in 15 years. (laughs) My trumpet skills improved very quickly, and with him, it was impossible not to play correctly because every little detail, he was correcting it right away and every day. So I didn't have time not to play right, you know, so it was sometimes very difficult. And playing concerts with him already when I was eight, nine, ten years old and touring in Europe or in the Middle East... And when you are eight, nine years old, it's something, you know. How were you playing concerts with him at eight years old when you just started at seven? Because in, in, in one year, I learned pretty much everything. And I didn't have the possibility to do mistakes. Every time I was missing something, do it again. Like every time. So, so when I was seven years old, uh, I started and... In, in one year, there was no day without a lesson, you know. It doesn't mean I was already on a professional level, but I was able to do it. And my father was really proud of this. So when I looked at him, I could see his pride, you know, like, this is my son. And, you know, we're from the Middle East, so this is a big thing, you know. <laughs> So that was really, really cool. In fact, you know, when you're young and you have the possibility, like I used to miss school and go to Germany, to Switzerland, to Belgium, uh, to Lebanon, to Algeria, to Syria, and do concerts with him was something, you know, you're nine years old, 10 years old, doing tours with your own father. You know, it's crazy. But the bad side of this is that I didn't grow up with the balance that a, a normal person can have at home or at school and all this. So that it wasn't always really good. And plus, when it's your father who's telling you what to do, sometimes you just want to say no. And he was very strict. And was your relationship with him dictated by how you were doing on the trumpet? Let me put it this way. It never happened that a lesson finishes with me missing something. Never. And even if I was crying, and my mother would, uh, would testify that, even if I was crying and I was saying, I want to go eat, and blah, 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 you know, this kind of stuff when you're eight, nine, ten, and he would never let me go eat if I didn't succeed first. So, so if I didn't get the note I wanted to play, or if I didn't finish the, the study I was trying to play, then I, you had to finish it, then you go eat. You have to finish it, 
then you go to school. You have to finish it, then you go to sleep. There was no way I could escape that. <laughs> I know it was a loving relationship, but that's, that's a lot for a nine-year-old to have to contend with. Did you feel then like too much was being demanded on you at that young age? Well, what you are saying is the perspective of uh, a 30 years old or 40 years old man. But when you are eight, nine, 10, you don't know that. So uh, you ignore that you have another choice that you could just look at your father and say, hey, dad, I'm nine. So just leave me alone. I want to play my Nintendo or I want to go listen to some music or I just want to go with my friends. You don't know you can say that. So you just obey and do exactly what your father is telling you to do. As you were touring all over Europe, performing these concerts, did you have a sense then that this was not normal? Or did you just go along and say, oh yeah, okay, today we're in Switzerland performing concertos in front of an orchestra? I, I was happy to do it. I was really happy to do it. And I could see in my father's eyes that, that, that something different was happening. And he would say it to me. He would say, you don't realize what you're doing. Like, you're my son. I'm proud of you. You don't even realize what's happening right now. So I, I would understand that there was something not so many uh, people would do maybe or something like this. But I wasn't, and I have never been, um, I know that it's not very American because, you know, usually the picture we have of America is like people very proud of what they do with this kind of stuff. This is the picture you guys have in France, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't at all like this. I, I'm still not like this. Like I, I've never been proud of like what I do, or I've never said I'm going to be the best or this kind of stuff. I just, I was just doing very respectfully what my father was teaching me without really having any specific comprehension of what I was really doing. But like now I have a 13 years old girl and I would never ever imagine her being on stage doing this. So now I understand a little bit better what exactly my father did with me. Your father grew up with no tradition of Western classical music. How does a farmer in the Lebanese mountains even pick up a trumpet in the first place? It's interesting what you're saying because it's definitely linked, right? The, the way he taught me music comes exactly from the fact that he didn't know anything when he was 25, 26, and he wanted to be a classical trumpet player, but he didn't know anything about what was classical music. He didn't know anything about French language. He didn't have money. He was a farmer. So my father's first experience with trumpet was in uh, 1963 or four. He was 22, 23 years old. And <clears throat> you know, Lebanon was a French mandate, maybe 80 years or something. France was culturally a huge influence in Lebanese people's lives. So in France, you know, you have always had every little village, you have like brass uh, ensembles play. That, that used to be like for two centuries, it, it right. used to be like this. In Lebanon, in the late 60s, this wasn't so much existing anymore, but the instruments were still packed in the schools. So my father didn't have the chance to go to school. And one day, um, reacting to uh, like a crisis in his family, he went to the school. And he wanted to study there. And they said, we're sorry, but you're too old. So he took one of the trumpets that were in the, in the closets. He stole a trumpet? 
He, I don't know if he stole it or if he asked for it, but he took it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody used to play it, you know, so he took it and he liked it. And there is even a story about that. It's that he, he went to Beirut Conservatoire because he wanted to study and people told him, well, you know, you're in Lebanon and not so many people teach this instrument. There's this guy, you know, who teaches trombone, tubas and trumpets if you want to take lessons. So he went there and he started to take lessons. And he fell in love with a German musician who was studying also in the conservatoire. And they had like a love story for like a few months. And she was living there. And then at some point she told him, I'm sorry, I have to go back to Germany because I'm getting married. And he was so frustrated because she left him. And she used to talk to him about Maurice André and about Europe and about France. So he got really sad and he decided to leave Lebanon and go to France and study with Maurice André. But he didn't know that Maurice André was, was the biggest trumpet, classical trumpet soloist in the world at that time. And that he was teaching in the highest level of trumpet ever you could find in the world. You know, he ignored all this. So he arrived in France. He was 24. And the amazing story is that seven years later, he was actually, indeed, studying with Maurice André in Paris National Conservatoire. And that's the craziest thing ever. <laughs> and 30 years after my father was studying with him, I arrived first at the Maurice André International Trumpet Competition. And that was something, you know. So I met him and he was like, oh my God, like you are the son of my spiritual son. And you're that here. Must be, <laughs> it's been incredible. What was that yeah. moment like meeting him? Well, you know, I was just doing what my father taught me and I didn't want to disappoint my father. And meeting with Maurice André was, of course, one of the most important things for him, like having Maurice André saying, okay, this guy is a good trumpeter. For my father, all this was important. For me, uh, I started understanding how important it was after living it. I wasn't really aware of what was happening, <laughs> you know. You're 22, it's, it's young. You still don't know so much, you know, about life. You're still learning things, you know, at 22. So after the Maurice André competition and all the studies at Paris Conservatoire and all this, I, I decided to stop playing trumpet. I wanted to compose movie soundtracks and I actually started composing movie soundtracks a few years later. But I have to back up for a second because <laughs> I've seen videos of you playing Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2, which is in the repertoire, possibly the most difficult piece to perform. And at age 20, you're just killing it. It looks so easy. Were you not enjoying it? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I know it's very uh, cliche, but I was answering a request from my father who was basically telling me, if you don't become one of the best soloists on trumpet, before even the age I discovered trumpet, that means you screwed your life. That, that's what he used to tell me when I was 16, 15, 17. So for some reason, I believed him. It's my father. Come on. <laughs> you know, he was my guide, my pillar, the one who deserved my respect. So I had to do it. But then I realized, come on, is this what I want to do in my life? I'm not sure. I have the right to question myself, you know. Do I love trumpet? No, I didn't love trumpet. I started to love trumpet very recently, actually. I, I think it's very human to question this kind of things. But 
But I know it's maybe strange because most people don't have this experience, you know, and when they are five, six, seven, eight, they actually love an instrument and, you know, the parents encourage them and they have a, a proper path, right? <laughs> but, but mine was my father's external second life. <laughs> he, was, he was living uh, his frustration through my experience. And that's okay for me. I don't consider myself as being traumatized by that. I even thank him every day that at the age of 15 or 16 years old, I opened my eyes and I already had the job, basically. But do I love trumpet when I'm 20? I'm not sure. And was there a particular concert that you were playing that was like your last one? You said, that's it, I have to pivot. I know exactly when it was. It was the final round of the Maurice André competition. And actually, not so many people know about it, but, but that specific day, you know, my, my parents divorced when I was 15 years old. And for many, many years, I was like right in between them and trying to fix things, not to get back together, but, but just like, please stop fighting and blah, 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 you know what it is. So when there was the final round of the Maurice André competition. After many years of not seeing each other, they decided to come to the final round, both of them. And they came to Théâtre du Châtelet, which is one of the most beautiful concert halls in, in Paris. And they started arguing right in front of all the people in the hall. And I was supposed to go on stage, compete. <laughs> you know? Oh my God, no way. Yeah, and that, that was like some kind of crazy fireworks in my head. And I was, okay, this is my last day playing trumpet. This is the last time I want to see these kind of things happening in my life. So I went on stage and I was looking at the audience and I was seeing my father and my mother and I couldn't finish playing. I even stopped playing. I somehow sabotaged myself. And after the competition, Maurice André told me, it's too bad, man, because you were the first, but we couldn't give you the first place. So nobody got the first place. <laughs> it was a way for me to... To say, you know what, guys, I made it, but anyways, I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> that, that's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what was your father's reaction as you told him that you were done with this? He didn't he believe me. Yeah. He didn't believe me. And he was right not to believe me because like a few months later, you know, I opened the trumpet and I started playing again, but... I made a promise to myself to never try to seek anything close to virtuosity. And I just decided to play what comes out from my heart, whatever people would think about it. Even if I have to maybe miss some notes on stage, I don't care. Like I completely changed everything in the way I see music and trumpet. You have such a distinctive sound and style. It's uniquely you, always, no matter what genre you're playing in, and you play in every genre. How long did it take for you to find your voice? You know, when I was young, I used to play my way when I was alone. I liked to play in a different way than the one that my father was teaching me. I was transforming my natural way and adapt it to what was asked. It took time to understand that I had the right 
to play the way I was playing when I was alone, you know, or when I was in my room. I, I just thought it was forbidden. And when I was 15, 16 years old and I listened for the first time to Miles, I was like, what? We have the right to play this way. I was like in my bubble, you know, I was in Maurice André and my father's world. I wasn't aware that it was allowed to play differently. And in this time of experimentation and permission to find your voice, was there a particular time that you felt like it clicked and you were able to harness the sound and use it in your music? Yes, I remember when I met and played and recorded with a Mexican-American singer whose name is Lassa de Sela. Now she, she passed away. She was a very young, uh, beautiful artist. And she came to Paris and she called me and she said, I would like you to play on my second album. So she invited me to Montreal. That was basically the first time I was actually feeling that my sound, my real sound could belong to a music. And she was telling me from the other side of the studio, I'm going to play you the music and just improvise. Just do what you do what you want. And that was one of the first times someone asked me to play what I want, you know. And I started playing. I closed my eyes and I just improvised. And it felt obvious to me that, okay, this is my blood. This is my music. This is something that I belong to. That's incredible. I've been listening to your latest album called Capacity to Love, and the album is amazing because every single track is a collaboration with a different artist. And one of the tunes called Quiet Culture really caught my attention. It starts with you playing alone with a piano very intimately like a jazz ballad, and then all of a sudden it's a rap, and the rap gets joined by a children's chorus, <laughs> and then the children's chorus gets joined by a, what sounds like a brass band, and eventually the tune ends up with you again finishing this jazz ballad. So it's this universe of music, and it's incredible. A tune like that, that's so complicated and goes so many different directions, do you conceive that as a whole, or do you set out to say, okay, I'm going to use all these different elements, how do I put these together? Um it's it's neither neither one of those two options. Uh, I just um, really believe that there is a philosophy behind every music. It's not only music. It's it's not only sounds that we like. It's more than that. You know, in, in music you can send messages, you can communicate emotions, you can prove things in which you believe deeply. For instance, like. The, the, this this track, I consider it as being an example of what our lives should be. And there's nothing that scares me more that when I hear someone saying, oh, I hate rock, or I hate jazz, or oh, I would never listen to African music, or I hate opera. I don't like when people say this because it reminds me how segregation can be terrible. Because if you segregate in music, that means you are able to segregate in your own life. So someone who tells me, I hate hard rock or hip hop, it's exactly as if someone comes and tells me, oh, I hate Ethiopian people. Oh, I hate Jewish people. Oh, I hate Arab people. I mean, how can you say that? Because you just need to meet one person 
with who you get along with to completely change this. So it can't be true. So for me, it's exactly the same with music. I like when people, for example, play traditional Baroque music. I love when people, uh, I really admire people who, who, for example, play typical rock or typical hip hop music or typical Indian music or, you know, I love this. But in my own music, I want to mix all the things that I love in a very natural way. And I never think of it in advance. And and I don't do patchworks either. When it sounds obvious to me, when it occurs to be natural, I just bring it. It's like someone who's cooking something very new, you know, and who doesn't really know exactly where he's going or she's going. But this person knows exactly that at the end of the day, once the dish is finished, it's going to be new and very good. But will people like it? That's another question. <laughs> you know? Well, it's obvious people like it because you sell out arenas with tens of thousands of people in the audience. And oftentimes, you'll turn them into your own choir. And you'll instruct them to sing along as you're improvising. When you're standing in the middle of that, focusing the musical energy of all these people through your compositions... What does that feel like? It feels like I'm living in the perfect world, you know? <laughs> and after that, once the concert is finished, I'm in another world and I go back home and it feels that I brought this idealistic world together for the night. And then I open the TV and back to reality and I see a black man in a parliament, someone telling him live in front of all the deputies, go back to Africa. And then I'm back to the real world. And then mm. I think, okay, there's so much to do still. <laughs> You're one of the most positive people that I've ever encountered. Where does this positivity come from? Um, struggle. <laughs> You know, I always and every day have to struggle and fight against unfair things. And you have two options. Either you get depressed and you dig deep in the ground and you bury yourself. <laughs> or you have another option, which is facing everything with an uh, extremely strong and powerful positivity and being optimistic, trying to find solutions, trying to find answers against adversity. You know, it's like any project that you try to build. You know, I, I know you're an amazing musician and you've achieved so many, you know, things in your life. You're, you're an amazing musicians, a musician yourself. You definitely must know, even like with this podcast, for example, that you're running, that there will always be people criticizing what you're doing and telling you, oh, you shouldn't have done this. Oh, you should do this this way, not that way. Always, there are always going to be people telling you that what you're doing is not good. And 
you have people who will tell you that you are amazing and people who will always tell you that you are terrible and you have always, you know, to deal with those things. And I've always been someone who likes doing things. I like creating things. So life is, is, is a struggle. It's a constant fight. If you do things, you will have always to fight for it. So since I'm someone who loves to do things, I have to accept the fights that go with this, right? So I have to be very optimistic and positive all the time, whatever happens. Speaking of people being opinionated, since you weave in and out of so many different cultures yourself, do you find that you're mostly accepted in with open arms? Or at first, are you considered an outsider until you prove yourself? I'm still an outsider in all the musics I've been working in. It feels to me sometimes that I'm, I'm like in the street, homeless, and I'm knocking at doors and saying, hey, I love your house. I love your family. I've seen you so many times. I, can I be part of this? And people say, ah, uh, you know, now we are busy having dinner. Oh, but, I, but look, my, my mother cooked something. I can share it with you. Oh, no, thank you. But maybe tomorrow, maybe next time. Okay, bye-bye. I'll leave. And I knock on another door and I say, hey, I heard you when you said this and this and that. And I love what you say. Um, can, I, can, I have some, can I have a talk with you? Oh, you know, it's, it's a bit late now. But we like you so much, but it's a bit late now. We have to finish a conversation. Oh, but you know, I have many ideas. I can share this with you. Oh, yeah, but you know, we are already so many. So if you could come next week. You know, it's this picture that I have. So I, I believe, I, I feel that I can belong to all those families. It feels to me that um, when I played classical music, I proved that I was able to play classical music. But for some reason, very, very few festivals invited me to play. So I decided to switch to jazz because I love jazz. And I've been selling albums in the jazz world for 15 years. And pretty much all my albums are number one for months every time they are sold and and I've, I've been playing in most festivals in, in the jazz world and I even won jazz awards in Germany, in France, in Belgium, etc, etc. But still now you have people who completely refuse to consider me as a jazz man and they don't want me to become a jazz man and they hate the idea that someone like me could be considered as a jazz man. You can even people who I respect so much because they would consider that we are changing what jazz is, the identity of jazz. And I really can understand that. It's like someone, as I told you, who's saying, well, you know, we are already a family. We love you, but you cannot belong to our family. So maybe knock on the next house. So I quit this world also. And I decided not to say I'm a classical musician. I decided not to say I'm a jazz musician. And I decided to say I'm just a musician and just handle it. Deal with it. I don't care anymore. I don't want to be put in any box. I'm just doing my stuff. <laughs> I want to ask you about a concert that you played in 2017 and you saw Quincy Jones as an audience member. I mean, this is the man who worked with everyone from Miles Davis to Michael Jackson, and he's there at your show. And you know that could open up so many doors to further your success. What was that moment like for you? <laughs> that was really unexpected. I wasn't at all expecting that this man would be on the side of the stage listening to my show. I went to my management and I said, guys, is this 
real? Is this Quincy Jones? And they said, yes. <laughs> and I said, wow. So how can I know if he likes my music or not? And they said, well, I mean, don't, don't be disappointed, Ibrahim, because, you know, most of the times he leaves during the concert. It doesn't mean he didn't like, but this is how it happens. He lives in the middle. And I said, okay, but how can I know if he likes the show? And they said, well, sometimes when he really likes a show, he orders food and he stays until the end. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So we started the show and every time I was playing, I was like, just like sneaking a bit like, is he eating? No. Is he eating? No. <laughs> and at some point, you know, I, I was like, okay, I mean, drop it. He's, he's going to leave. I mean, of course. I mean, he's Quincy Jones. Come on. I mean, who am I? And at some point, I saw a huge plate of sushi that arrived right in front of him. And while I was playing, I was like, yes, yes, yes. You know, so after the show, I went and I sat with him and we've been talking like for 13 minutes or 45 minutes. I don't remember. And he asked me about uh, what I do and where I'm from. And then he said, you know, I'd like to work with you. You should contact my team. Uh, I would like to uh, help you in what you're doing because you... I, I love what you do. And since then, we started working uh, together with his team. And that's one of the most uh, crazy things that happened in my life. You know? Well, your music inspires me so much, but just talking to you has been such an inspiration. It's actually going to be difficult for me to go do my job tonight. Um, <laughs> well, David, let me tell you something. I have a huge admiration for the people who do what you do, because I believe that in the trumpet world, it's the most difficult thing to do, what you do. You are part of the orchestra. The responsibility is much bigger. You know, if, if I miss a note when I'm on stage, I don't care. It, it's not going to change my life if I miss a note. So who's the artist? You or me? Well, you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.